Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us about the most important thing that Adam and Eve did for their children and the most important thing that we can do for our children. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. God bless you all. All right, so let's look at uh, Genesis uh, chapter 4, which is a portion we've been studying in here. And let's start off this morning now with prayer. Father, we come to you this morning with one word, Lord, help. Lord, help us this morning. Help us as we study in your word to see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, so that we can come out of this class this morning and say with more understanding than we had before, God is good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now, text here, Genesis chapter 4. Let's follow along. I'm going to start here in verse 1. And Adam knew his wife, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man, the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was the keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of ground. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And in Abel, he also brought of the first things of his flock and the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. But Cain was very wroth, his countenance fell. The Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt not thou be accepted. If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Cain talked with Abel his brother, And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel, thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I thy brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood, or literally bloods, crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be heard hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Whosoever, therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, thence shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Now, last week we took this ride, this emotional ride. It was really a roller coaster ride with Eve. We got tickets to the ride Eve's emotional roller coaster. And we got on that roller coaster and with Eve. And we went up to the height of the roller coaster with the birth of Cain without really asking God. She just proclaimed in verse 1 there that she had gotten God's remedy for sin. She was so excited. Death issue, the sin issue was all taken care of because she got the man. She got the God man, she said. We looked at literal Hebrew when she said, I've gotten the man God. She got the divine serpent head crutcher. That's what she was saying. She got the divine Messiah, she thought. 
And she was holding within her hands this one. So she was at the top of her emotional roller coaster. And then we saw that as that baby named Cain grew up before them, that that baby was making all kinds of wrong decisions. And something was developing that was very disturbing. And this turned out to be, as she saw, this was, she was wrong, dead wrong. This was not the man God at all that she thought. And she, she watched with great hope for her presumed rescuer, Cain. To her shock, she saw a person that was more like the man devil and more like the man serpent. And when she saw Cain become this little devil, her emotional roller coaster, it just plunged straight on down to the bottom. And she went into this dive of depression as she saw all of her hopes and Adam from being rescued from sin and death. They just plunged down there. They got shattered as they watched Cain become an anti-God and they watched Cain become disobedient, selfish, hostile, just a little devil. And the tragedy was much more than just a kid went bad. The tragedy here was that that they saw in Cain that he was not their ticket out. He was not their rescuer. He was not going to get them out of all this sin and death that they'd gotten themselves into. So they looked at Cain and they said, you know, he's our physical son, but he's just not one of us. To Adam and Eve. Our boy Cain, he just represents who we were when they looked at him. You see, our boy Cain, he's the epitome of the old us. He was the way we were back in the garden when we ran away from God and we hid from God and we rebelled against God and rebuffed him when he asked us questions. And when we see Cain, we just see that old us that didn't need God to solve our problems. We went about and we made aprons of fig leaves and we were proud of those self-made aprons. We were. And Cain, he just scares us. Because what we see in Cain is the old us and in that hostility that blames everyone for the sin that we were guilty of. Cain, he scares us. Because our boy Cain, he's just a part of our old seed. And and our old seed, that's the one that replied to God, no, to God. That's the one that didn't want God. That's the seed that was independent of God. That was the seed that says, I want to be free from God. That's the seed that says, I will not have this God to reign over me. That's the way we used to be. That was the seed we came from. That was the old seed. But Adam and Eve could say to themselves, a great change happened to us. We left our old seed. We changed into a new seed. We changed our seed ship. And that change in seed ship happened to us when we decided to come out from our hiding from God. When we decided to cast ourselves on the mercy of God and throw down the weapons of our warfare. That change happened when we decided to stop trying to fix ourselves with our self-made fig leaf aprons. And we let God clothe us with his sacrificial coats of skins. And we're so happy with our new seed. And there's no turning back for us. But the big problem is our boy Cain. He wants to stay in the old seed. 
and have nothing to do with the new us, with the new seed. So Eve realized that Cain was going to be no leader of the new seed to rescue them, but he was the leader of the old rotten seed that they were ashamed of. When Eve saw this, her emotional roller coaster just went straight on down to the bottom. She hit rock bottom. And the next birth, you picture it, a baby's born. Eve, it's a boy. What do you want to name it? Call him perishing. That's what Abel means. Call him vanity. It's the key word of the book of Ecclesiastes, Abel. There's no hope. There's no more hope. Hope is vain. Our hope is perishing. Well, forget about this promises of God stuff. It's all gone. Now, Eve naming her secondborn perishing was like a slap in the face to God. And it was as if he says to God, God, here's what I think of your Genesis 3.15 promises. I think they're vanity. Here's what I think about you bringing us a head crusher for the serpent. Perishing. So when we read this, we want to jump in and say, Eve, 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 take it easy, Eve. Just slow down. We, we want to say, don't name the boy that. Don't give him that name, Eve. But that's the name he got. And it's really a description of her despair and depression. And at this point in history, you know, what's so great about God is that he doesn't react at this point against Eve. You know, he doesn't step in there and say, Eve, what are you doing? Can't you be patient? Can't you cut me a little slack, Eve? Can't you just give me a chance? And then for us, who might get super critical of Eve, then God would say to us, hold it, Eve's my child. I love my child. I'll bring her along. That's my business. That's my pay scale. That's not your pay scale. Just wait and see. So we can be sure that Eve as time went on, that she wished that she hadn't named him Abel. But, you know, she did it during a time when she was in depression and giving up on God's promises, and she gave him the name, and unfortunately, her moment was memorialized. And um, it's 6,000 years later right now, and we're still reading about her bad day. And uh, sometimes we have a bad day. And sometimes we have a bad spirit. And it's best to be careful. And don't say very much. And don't do very much. Because it's during those times when we say things and we wish that we could take them back. And it's during those times when we do things and we just wish that we could just rewind the tape and take another take on it. In this case, Eve, she just had a bad time in her life. It's just... It's just it's a bad day when she gave birth to her secondborn and Eve's bad spirit of depression and giving up on God. Well, here it is. She just wished that everyone could just forget about her bad day, but unfortunately, it's been here for a while. So what does the naming of Abel teach us? What lesson do we carry away from it? The little children's song. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Right? <laughs> Careful little mouth what you say, for the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful little mouth what you say. Okay? And be careful little hands what you do, and so forth. Now, there's just one verse. It's an interesting verse, and it describes just one night in the life of David, and it's found in 2 Samuel 11:2, and it says this, and it came to pass 
in an evening tide. See, one evening tide. Just one. That David arose from off his bed and he walked upon the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. It's just one night. Just one night in the life of David. And David was having a bad night. So he decided to take a walk on his roof, and he saw a woman named Bathsheba, who just happened to be another man's wife. And that led him to adultery, and that led him to murder her husband, Uriah. All from just one bad night. All from just one bad walk. All from just one bad look. So there's more parts of the children's song for David. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Careful, little feet, where you go. There's a father up above. He's looking down in love. So be careful, little feet, where you go. And one more verse for David. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Okay? So one night, one walk, one look, and it's immortalized for going on 3,000 years for now. We read about it. And David ends up saying, You know, does the whole thing with Bathsheba and Uriah have to be immortalized? I mean, you know, couldn't it be just forgotten already? Does it have to be written down? Verse 4. Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of the flock and the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel to his offering. So here we see Abel, and he is bringing an animal, and he's sacrificing it to God. And then it says, God has respect to Abel and to his offering. Now here's a question. How did Abel know that the offering that God wanted and that would be respected would be a blood offering? Well, the answer is obviously because of Adam and Eve. They taught him. They took their responsibility seriously and they taught their boy, Abel. And they said to Abel, Abel, we're going to tell you what you need to know about God. And they said to Abel, we came to God wearing this plant sacrifice, this fig leaves. And we sacrificed the fig leaves. I don't even know if you can sacrifice fig leaves, but anyways, they sacrificed fig leaves. And we made this apron, and God said, no, that's not acceptable. I don't have respect for your apron of fig leaf. And so God came, they're teaching the boy, and he replaced, he he took off our apron of fig leaves, and he made instead coats of skin. And we saw God kill the animals. We saw the blood that happened in order for him to provide us for our covering and to save us from being exposed before a holy God. God did this. So Abel, God saves through substitutionary death. And that death has to be a blood offering. So Abel, he's listening, he takes it to heart, and he brings the blood offering because Adam and Eve taught him, and he obeyed. That shows us that Adam and Eve were not just parents who took care of his physical needs of their children, but took care of the spiritual needs of their children. Good parents understand the most important part, what they can give to their children, is to lead them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Tom, today you said that the most important gift parents can give to their children 
is to lead them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's not the common view. Some would say the most important gift parents can give to their children is the inheritance of a house and all the assets that they've worked hard to collect in their lifetime. Others would say the most important gift parents can give to their children is their friendship and the time that they've invested in their development as a person. And others would say that the most important gift that parents can give to their children is that their family name and what it means and their family values. Now, others would say that the most important gift parents can give to their children is what they were not given as a child, such as a good education, a good chance at a good career, and money. But you said the most important gift parents can give their children is to lead them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Since this is counter to what is currently believed, can you please explain what the most important gift parents can give to their children and why it is the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, because all those things that you mentioned, and that is what is commonly viewed today, that the most important thing that I as a parent can hand down to my children is this house that I have poured my life into. And maybe that was a house that you got by inheritance as well. And you would look at the house and you'd say, here it is. I've lived. I'm going to die. And I'm handing to you the fruit of my life, this house, or all these assets that I've worked so hard to collect in my lifetime. I've invested money. That money has paid off. I've done businesses. I've sold those businesses. And now I have this beautiful, fat bank account, and I'm handing it over to you, my children. That's how some people think. Or other people think, look, I don't have a lot of money to hand to you, but what I've done in my lifetime is I've invested in you and my friendship and the time that I've taken to to mentor you, to be there for you. I've created for you wonderful memories of me as your parent. That's my gift to you. Others would say, you were born into a very, very important family. And our family name has been preserved, and there's values associated with our family name. This is especially important in Jewish families of the family values of we stand for one another, we protect one another, we stick up for one another, we will never desert each other. Those are the family values, and I want you to have those, and I've passed these on to you as a gift. And others would say what my father said to me, he he remembers growing up in Petersburg, Virginia, the son of an Orthodox rabbi who established the synagogue in Petersburg, Virginia, Britachim, which is still the only Jewish synagogue in Petersburg, Virginia, established over 100 years ago. But his mother and father were poor. They didn't have a lot of money, especially when he and his brothers all decided that they wanted to go to medical school. And how in the world, as one of them went to Harvard, another one went to University of Virginia, my father went to University of Chicago, where they going to have the money for this? And they had to work and they had to scrape and they had to do whatever they could. And he remembers those days and the hand-me-down clothes and 
everything that went along. And he used to say to me, I'm going to give you what I never had as a child. Well, you know, I grew up in his house, and which was in Bel Air, which is not exactly the low-income area of Los Angeles. And so I never knew that and never really could associate with what he was talking about. That is until I married my wife that wasn't Jewish and found myself cut off in the family with just $100. Then I understood what, what it meant for have the silver spoon in my mouth all of a sudden turn to aluminum. But that this parents really do believe this, that if they can give to their child what they never had, money, a good career, a good chance at a career, a good education, then that's the most important. Or it could be whatever, fill in the blank. But in reality, the most important gift that parents can give to their children is to lead them, is to bring them, is to show them by their lives how to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, how to become a child of the Lord Jesus Christ, a child of God. That's the most important thing that parents can give to their children. Why? And as you, as we've seen, it's so counter to what's currently believed. So it really does demand an explanation. What do you mean that that's the most important, that that's more important than an inheritance of a house and money and the friendship and time that a parent can invest in, which, which is not bad as long as that friendship and time is bringing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you mean it's more important than our family name and our family values? What do you mean that it's more important than a good education, a chance for a good career? What do you mean by that? Well, this is what I mean. It's all explained in Jeremiah, the Jewish prophet Jeremiah, 500 years, over 500 years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born. He said this about the Jewish people. In Jeremiah 2.13, he said, God, he's really the mouthpiece for God. He's speaking for God, and he says, For my people have committed two evils. And then he lists them. First, he says, They have forsaken me. Now get how the Lord has described here his title. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. That's the first evil that they committed, that the Jewish people committed. Second, is listed. He says, and hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You see, what he's saying is that the people, his people, the Jewish people, have forsaken him, the fountain of living waters. Who is the him, the fountain of living waters? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. When he stood up and he said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me. Why was he saying that? Because he is the fountain of living waters. And they have forsaken him. That's what Isaiah 53 says. It says he was despised. He was rejected of men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's what John 1 says the Jewish people did when they says he came unto his own in John 1 11, and his own received him not. That's all saying the same thing that Jeremiah is saying here. They have forsaken me. And the tragedy is he is not just anyone. He is the fountain of living waters. And they have the second evil. They've hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, 
cisterns that can hold no water. They worked very, very hard. What were they doing working so hard? They were making the money. They were buying the house. They were getting the good career and passing on a good chance for a good education and so forth and everything they were doing. But God said all of those efforts were building broken cisterns that when you turn to those cisterns and you say, I am dying of thirst, I need water, to your shock, they find that they are they can hold no water. They have all that you've invested in them have only been to see the water leak out and not sustain you in the time of need. Jeremiah further went on in Jeremiah 17, 13, and he says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, think of that as the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord Jesus Christ, the hope of Israel, Tikva Yisrael, all they that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from thee shall be written in the earth. That's the most terrible thing that can happen to a person, to only be written on a tombstone, to only be written in the earth that's going to be destroyed. It says, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. It's so much better to be written in the book of life from Revelation 20:15 that whoever was found written in the book of life was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The term the fountain of living waters is really expressing what the Lord Jesus Christ when he said seek first the kingdom of God and all those things will be added unto you. Do we need Uh, money for food and shelter and, in some cases, a good education and a career. Of course, and God knows we have need need of those things if we do. But he says all those things will be added to you if you seek first the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the fountain of living waters. Seek him first. All of those things will be added to you. That's why the most important thing is a parent can do is lead their children to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today. Now again, this month we're offering Tom Cantor's acclaimed book, Understanding the Jewish Messiah, as seen in the life of Joseph. You're going to want a copy of this book, so please call us 1-800-247-3051. You can also go to our website, friendshipwithgod.org, or again, you can call us at 1-800-247-3051. On our website, we do have an online store, or you can just call us directly to order any of Tom Cantor's DVDs, materials, teachings, or books. Call us today, 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. Or again, go to friendshipwithgod.org or israelrestoration.org to order any materials with our online bookstore from Tom Cantor. You can also go to creationsd.org 